Welcome into the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. Uh, real quick before we dive into this Friday show, I want to remind you guys that if you are not subscribing to DuckTerritory.com, why not? You should jump on this right now. We have an option for uh, new members where you get your first month for $1. That's all it costs, $1. And after that, it moves to $9.95 per month. Inside scoop on the Oregon Ducks, expert analysis and opinion, all content across the 24-7 Sports Network. Uh, you get access to guys like Eric, myself, Kevin Wade, Greg Biggins, Brandon Huffman. Uh, the list goes on and on. Uh, recruiting coverage. Uh, and on top of that, you also get CBS All Access for free once your promo price of $1 uh, for that first month runs out. Uh, CBS All Access is their streaming platform, 10,000 shows, movies, on-demand, uh, live sports, all commercial-free, too. Uh, with your C- with When you have a subscription with DuckTerritory.com, you get CBS uh, All Access for free. So uh, highly encourage you guys to do that there. Now that we've got that out of the way, uh, Eric, it's a Friday. Uh, a lot of, I think, bigger-picture discussion uh, for Oregon Football 2019 on this podcast. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's – I mean – it's warranted. It's, it's a season that there's a lot to talk about still. Um, and, and, and if you check the site frequently, as I, I'm sure some of the podcast listeners do, I hope most of you do, um, there's, there's been a ton of reflective content all week in terms of I've been looking at position groups. Matt's been providing a lot of insight for the future with, with interviews with players. So, um, and, and we've got, I just posted my season position grades. I'll have, um, some looks at the 2020 season. So there's a lot of stuff, even though the season has just ended. Um, about a week now, um, there's still a lot to discuss from this season, and I think today's podcast is going to be no different and a lot of fun kind of discussion points for us to have because, like I said, I mean, this was a special season, and I think there's still, we see it on the board, you know, and we, and we see it in the interest in the stories, right? There's still just a lot of interest right now about this team and about this season and about this program going forward, and, uh, yeah, excited to kind of talk about some of these bigger picture, kind of looking at the season uh, as, a, as a greater kind of whole. Uh, things with Matt today on this podcast, so let's get going. Yeah, we've, we've, we're going to start with five players who exceeded expectations this season. I think looking at my list, I have not seen yours, Eric. We, we usually do not compare notes going into these things. Uh, most of mine are guys that um, a couple of them were starters, and then a couple of them are, are guys that kind of rose through the depth chart throughout the, the season. Um, but I'm going to start with the first guy on the list. And for me, it's, it's junior wide receiver Johnny Johnson. Um, this was a guy last year who basically you, you could not rely on to make the big catch for Oregon football because he just had a, a really bad case of the drops. I mean, he had 17 catches for 215 yards, four touchdowns last season. And I think those four touchdowns came in like the first three games of his sophomore year. Um, and as a junior, he kind of solidified himself as a go-to guy at the position in the conference, not just for Oregon, but just in the conference. 57 catches, 836 yards, seven touchdowns, all of that being team highs uh, for the Ducks. His average went up to 14.7 yards per catch, which last year was at 12.6. Uh, his drops were significantly down, and now all of a sudden in his career, he's almost at 100 career catches. He's got 95. He 
He's over 1,300 yards receiving. He's got 12 touchdowns. From a, a statistical standpoint, he set himself up for a senior season, which he can, if he can duplicate it again, what he did as a junior, he might go down as statistically one of the top 10 best receivers to play at Oregon. I mean, yeah, he, if you look at it in terms of guys returning in the Pac-12, uh, it depends on what Tyler Vaughn's does from USC. I, don't, I know he hasn't announced he's going. I, I, maybe he'll come back. But if Vaughn's comes back, uh, Johnson is the third leading receiver in the Pac-12 behind two other, or I guess behind a couple of USC guys, Vaughn's and then Amon St. Brown. Uh, I don't think that's something we really expected at all. No. I mean, when we did our predicting the stats story, I didn't have him leading Oregon in any of the receiving stats. Um, I had Pittman, I think, leading the team in receiving yards, and I had or Pittman leading the team in reception. Sorry, Jawan Johnson leading the team in, in yards and touchdowns, and Jawan jo- or Jawan Johnson kind of felt like an afterthought. Um, and for him to lead the team in, in all three of those stats this season, and you, you look at the receiving yardage by a pretty significant margin, um, is really surprising. And uh, he was a guy who, yeah, last year in 2018, you know, you, you, you kind of mentioned it. He had all four of his touchdowns in non-conference play, and he had basically all of his yards in non-conference play. He had one game in conference action all of last season where he had more than 30 yards. So um, he was somebody who could completely fallen off the radar, basically, once conference play started in 20, uh, 2018, and to see him emerge like he did this year. And I think in part due to the fact that there were a lot of guys dinged up early. Um, you know, he, he was a beneficiary, if you will, of the fact that Michael Pittman wasn't available, and Jawan Johnson wasn't available, Brennan Schooler wasn't available, even a guy like Cam McCormick, who was expected to be a big receiver, wasn't available. So yeah, absolutely, and, and, and I'm not sure if I've even said it, Johnny Johnson's also one of my five. <laughs> if we haven't gotten to that point yet, uh, he was he was the first guy I thought of for this prompt, and I think it makes a ton of sense. Uh, the, the contributions he had this year were significant. Oregon probably doesn't have the record it does without his contributions, nope. and you look at you're looking at a guy who where if say John Johnson doesn't have a great junior season, you probably go into this 2020 season going, oh boy, like who's going to be the guy? But that's not the case. You have a pretty clear cut number one guy in John Johnson. And we should mention he and Tyler Shuck, if Shuck ends up being the starting quarterback, are pretty close friends from um, kind of growing up in the same area of Arizona. They, I know they work out down there together and stuff like that. So I would expect that if, if it is Shuck, that those two would have a pretty strong connection too. Uh, you're up for, you're up next. Alright, number two, I think this is, and this is just because of how, how much he produced at the end of the season, but, uh, Kayvon Thibodeau, I know he can't, comes into the program with sky high expectations as the highest rated recruit, um, to, to ever sign with Oregon, you know, a consensus five star, a consensus top three, top four guy in the country. Um, he stated before the season he wanted to have double digit sack numbers, and he almost got there, and, the fact that he ends up with a season like he did, where 14 tackles for loss, nine sacks, he's the Pac-12 freshman defensive player of the year. Somehow he's not on one of the first or second team all defenses for the conference, but again, that's still uh, that's beyond me. But uh, that's what it says. Uh, you look at what Thibodeau did this season. And I just think it's really impressive for a freshman to have the kind of expectations, to have the kind of hype that he comes in with, to go out and perform at the level that he does, and, and actually live up to it. Um, I think says a lot about the player and the, and, the, and the upside he has. And you end up leaving this season, you know, you, you enter the season obviously with sky high expectations, but I think you leave this season and look to 2020 with even higher expectations of like, what is he capable of accomplishing? I mean, as a freshman where he wasn't even starting the first four or five games of the season until Gus Cumberlander goes down, 
um, with an unfortunate injury, like could Thibodeau in 2020, if he steps his game up, could he be a guy with like over 20 tackles for loss and 15 sacks? Like, I don't think that kind of stuff is totally off the table for him. Um, you know, the, uh, you know, and, and he's going to have a ton of attention. Uh, you know, especially the way he played in the Pac-12 Conference Championship game against Utah. And there are a couple other games on national television where he played really, really well as well. Um, I just think he's somebody that came in with really high expectations, and I actually think exceeded him just because you could look at true freshmen, and typically they're not guys that come out and, and kind of match it like this. And uh, he was one of a couple of freshmen uh, this year that had high expectations that I thought really met those expectations and then furthered them a little bit. It's a good pick. Um, it's very warranted too. Um, I, I can't disagree on anything that you said of just his long-term potential and just kind of how he turned a corner of the second half of that season. Um, my number two is a guy that had a, kind of a similar arc, uh, on the defense and that's Brady Breeze. Fourth on the team in tackles with 62, 43 of those being solo tackles. He finished with two interceptions, three total touchdowns, two coming on defense, one coming on special teams. Uh, three passes defended, four fumble recoveries, which is a team high. He also forced a fumble, which was in the Rose Bowl, uh, to, to get the ball back for Oregon to win the game. Um, I just think Breeze was a, a special team star his first two years uh, with the Ducks. And um, as a junior, he kind of fought and fought during fall camp with Nick Pickett. Pickett won the battle for safety. He kind of had that similar special teams role, got on the field a little bit more than he previously had, but still wasn't playing a ton. And then uh, second half of the year, he got on the field, and Oregon just could not take him off. They could not afford to do it. And he ended the year as the Rose Bowl defensive MVP. And, I, I look, I think he's going to be an all-conference player next year as a senior, uh, and he's going to go down as you know one of the better players on, the, on next year's uh, Oregon football team. Yeah, I, my, my third one, uh, also Brady Breeze, for <laughs> a lot of the same reasons. Uh, I mean, this came out of nowhere, really. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, we had talked about, you know, he was one of those guys that was talked about every offseason of, like, maybe he'll figure it out, maybe he'll put it together, maybe he'll have a breakout season, but we just hadn't really seen it yet to the point where last year there were times where uh, he was, like, working at linebacker just to try to fit on the field. And, you know, he's, if, you, if you look at his build, he's very undersized for that position, so it wasn't really, like, a long-term position that made a lot of sense for him. So that kind of talks about how dire things were for him, but to look up where at the end of the season here, uh, he was probably the defense's best player over the last two games. I mean, he played at such a high level against Utah and then such a high level against Wisconsin. And just, he just always seems to be in the right place at the right time. Always, always yep. around the ball, always re- ready to make a play. Um, and I think his physicality is under, undervalued. His defense in the second half. Yeah. And that's a good point too, in terms of like, he was kind of an enforcer back there. Not that Nick Pickett hadn't been, but he's certainly more physical. The combination of Pickett and Breeze made a lot of sense, especially against Utah and Wisconsin, two teams that are a little bit more physical that probably aren't going to stretch the field quite as much deep. Um, to take off a guy like Verone McKinley who's maybe a little bit better against the pass and put on Breeze, and now you have a, two bigger safeties that are a little bit more physical that will come up and hit you pretty good. Um, yeah, how many times during the season did we, or during each game, where we're just like, oh, dear God, Brady Breeze just killed somebody? Like, like, like a, a lot, a lot at the end of the season. I mean, there were a couple of plays on special teams. I think he just demolished Crookshank. On, I think it was Crookshank on one of those kickoff returns after he had had such a good start. So, um, yeah, Brady Breeze is kind of an easy one here, you know, in part because, A, he, he finishes the season as 
one of the defensive stars and one of the kind of the defining presences for this team in the Rose Bowl and in the Pac-12 Conference Championship game, and then B, because we didn't see this coming really at all. Like, in spring ball, he was pushing to maybe be the starter, but it was kind of like, oh, it'll be Nick Pickett. Uh, Javon Holland is clearly going to be one of the starters, and then they switch everything around, and Holland plays nickel, and McKinley slides over to safety, and it kind of felt like Breach is kind of the lost guy, but nope, he stuck with it, and to his credit, was was ready when his number was called and, and really performed at such a high level. I mean, <laughs> I mean, honestly, really, really exciting. I think just from a personal level, one of the nicer guys on the team and a per- really easy person to root for. To, so to see him play like this was, was actually just kind of, on a personal level, fun to see because he is such a, a high-character, nice kid. Uh, is, it, is it me for, yep, for my yep. third? Yep, go ahead. Uh, this one is going to be a surprise, I think. Oh. Um, there was no doubt we thought this guy was very good. I just didn't think we were going to see him become this good, and that's Penny Sewell. Um, highest graded player at PFF and with a grade of 95.9 points, the best ever at left tackle in PFF history, uh, Outland Trophy winner as a sophomore. Um I can't say enough of just how good he is. I mean, he, I think he's the best player on the team, uh, regardless of position, regardless of class. Uh, I think he's the best pro, the best pro prospect, uh, on this football team right now, ahead of Justin Herbert, ahead of Troy Dye, ahead of Throckmorton, Shane Lemieux, uh, Kayvon Thibodeau. I think it's Penny Sewell. And I, if, if it wasn't for Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields being in the draft next year, I think he'd be the number one pick. And I still think, He's going to be in that discussion. You know, there, there could be a team that, who has the number one pick and doesn't need a quarterback and needs an offensive lineman. You know, they may just say, Hey, let's trade down one or two spots, uh, get a couple extra draft picks and still get the guy who's number one on our board. And that's Penay Sewell. Um, he's, he's shown up right away at Oregon as a freshman in 2009, in 2018, excuse me, uh, played as, you know, true freshman started. We all know about the importance there, but, I don't know if I was expecting his sophomore campaign to be where it, it was this good. Um, he's probably going to go down as the greatest offensive lineman to play at Oregon. Uh, and if for whatever reason he decides to come back for a senior year, which makes absolutely zero sense, uh, he could go down as maybe one of the greatest to ever play the position in the Pac-12. He's just that good. And I don't think – we were expecting him to make that big of a jump uh, between his freshman and his sophomore seasons. All, all great points, and I'm kind of kicking myself for not picking that one because I, with the Kayvon pick, I was kind of thinking guys who had high expectations who even outperformed it, but Sewell is the perfect example of that because you're right. You know, He basically played half of his freshman season because of the injury. Um, was it clearly a, a, I mean, you saw how the offensive production kind of dropped, and I think that's a thing now that we kind of look back after seeing how good Sewell was this year, and you kind of wonder about that 2018 season. The offensive production did go down when he got he got hurt and, and was lost for basically the rest of the season. Um, but you're, you're right, and those points are great points in terms of he's somebody who is is a special special talent. And I think because of the position he he plays, maybe it gets overlooked by some. But he he is clearly the best at his position, and I don't think that was something you know, on a national level, I should say. And that's not something that we really I think anticipated being able to say. Um, following this season, but you know, it's kind of one of those no, no questions. He's, I think, the t- most talented guy on the team. He and Kayvon probably the two most talented players currently still with the program um, in terms of draft prospectus. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's a good pick there. I wish I would have made that one uh, myself. My my fourth one here, similar kind of thing here, but Mikhail Wright, 
Um, you know, we talked so much about him after that spring about how good he was going to be. I wasn't expecting the contributions he would make on special teams uh, as a kick returner. Uh, he changed games for Oregon. Um, you know, his first kickoff return uh, of the season of his career in college against Washington State sets up Oregon for a touchdown drive that wins the game, you know, and then he returns two more um, for touchdowns in big moments. I mean, that one against USC totally changes the momentum of that game. Uh, he was such a dangerous player uh, in the return game, and that is not even to mention the fact that he was really good in the secondary uh, as a defensive player and was a guy that even with all of that experience with Thomas Graham and Diamond Lenore and McKinley and all the safeties we just talked about, a guy they really couldn't keep off the field. I mean, he was playing a significant amount. You, you go back and obviously watch that Wisconsin game. Uh, he, he was called for, I think, a questionable pass interference there, but that was in a key situation in the game. They, they didn't, you know, they, they didn't shy away from playing Mikhail Wright in big moments. And I think that speaks to, the kind of player he is, both as a defensive player, as a, as a cornerback, but also on special teams and somebody that, you know, I talked about Kayvon Thibodeau having high expectations of living up to them and exceeding him. We just talked about Penny Sewell kind of doing the same thing. I think Mikhail Wright's another guy that fits into that mold of somebody that came in, we thought he was going to be really good. Turns out we were right. He was really good. And he then took it to a different level because I was not personally expecting those special teams contributions. Um, we knew he would be good in coverage. We saw that in the spring, but Man, he is a dynamic player, and you have to be really excited if you're an Oregon fan. I think about just you've got two really good return guys coming back for for the 2020 season in Mikhail Wright and Javon Holland, who, who obviously Holland uh, returning punts. Yeah, Mikhail Wright's a guy I wish I I had picked. Um, I didn't include him on this list, but that's a that's a really good pull because you're right. Like Travis Dye, I don't think was terrible at punt returns. I mean, kick returns. But no. it, it, I mean, he was serviceable and was solid, but it, it really felt like once they put Michael Wright back there, it was like, oh boy, anytime he touches it, he could score. He was that good. Uh, you know, basically the last seven games, eight games of, of that season. And honestly, it's, he, it's, it's his position now until he's, he's gone. Whenever he leaves Oregon, it's his position, I think. And, you know, he's, his ability to, to just, his burst is, is just very impressive. And his cover skills were really good. And I was really surprised at how good of a corner he was after not playing football for his right. senior year. That's the biggest thing is he, he didn't play as a senior because he, because of transfer stuff and he had to sit out. He was ruled ineligible. And so he didn't play a whole season of football and to show up and be that good, you know, with that long of a layoff, that's pretty impressive. Um, my number four is a guy you've already mentioned, Kayvon Thibodeau, 35 tackles, 14 tackles for loss, which is a team high, uh, nine sacks, which is a team high, three passes defended, one forced fumble. Um, you're right in that second half of this season when Gus Cumberlander went down with his injury and Thibodeau kind of walked in and became, uh, you know, the go-to starter and had to play and had to play a ton of snaps. His game really elevated and went to a whole nother level. And you're right when you said that, I mean, he could be one of the best defensive ends in the country next season. And he could be, you know, uh, the guy that leads the conference in sacks. Maybe he contends for the nation, uh, in sacks next season. And I, I, I really think even though Oregon loses Troy Dye and they might lose Jordan Scott or Thomas Graham or Diamond Lenore, um, I really think a big reason why the defense is going to be better next season 
is because of the emergence of Kayvon Thibodeau. I mean, the, his jump off the snap is just unrivaled by anybody uh, in the conference. And to have that guy back there, that's going to make everyone else's jobs that much easier. Uh, and it's going to become a, he's become a huge impact player for, for Oregon's team in, you know, just a matter of weeks during the season. All right, my fifth one here, I'm kind of laughing at it because I could have picked someone like Penny Sewell, but instead I picked the punter. Um, <laughs> uh, Blake Maimon, uh, you know, and, and, and I think it's warranted pick. It's just funny because Penny is obviously like the best offensive lineman in the country, but, uh, Oregon really had a weapon with Maimon this year and he was pretty good as a junior. Um, he only increased his, uh, yards per punt by about two and a half from junior to senior year. So it's not a huge increase here, but, he was really a, a, a tremendous part of, I think, Oregon's ability to flip the field this season. And there were, and there were games, there were games where he, he played a huge role in that. Um, you know, he had long punts uh, over 50 in six of the team's 14 games. Actually, seven, sorry, of the team's 14 games. He had a 62-yard punt against Utah. He averaged 50 yards per punt in that Utah game. He averaged 45 um, against Wisconsin. And Oregon... You just go back and look at the numbers historically over the last decade. Just hasn't had um, a, a guy that does that very much. They haven't had guys that that are capable of even averaging over forty yards per punt. So to have a guy who's averaging in the mid forties, uh, like like Maimo, I thought that was a significant uh, development for Oregon. And there were games where I really felt like his contributions, when the offense maybe wasn't work, you know, performing very well, or the defense was having a hard time, I think kind of settled things because there were times where he would just, you know, Oregon offense goes three and out and he boots at 55 yards and it kind of curbs some of the momentum for the other team. So um, he's not Penny Sewell, but I think Blake Maimon is a guy who certainly performed at a high level and deserve, uh, deserves to at least be recognized. Well, wait, how many how many years have we gone where we've thought, oh, geez, Oregon's got a punt. Are they going to get a, a punt that's going to go more than 34 yards? Like <laughs> Right. Like, it just seemed like punting, you know, the last couple of seasons was just, you know, I, I don't want to swear, but a cluster, you know what? Like, it was just, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> and yeah. this season, you're right. You know, Maymon was, you know, more than solid. He was good. He was one of the better punters in the conference. And look, I, I'll, I'll complain and I'll, I'll crack jokes all you want about Cristobal choosing to punt at his, you know, opponent's 34 yard line or 36 yard line, but, the reality is, more often than not, when he did do that, Maimon pinned him and, you know, got the ball inside the, the four, five, ten yard line. I mean, how many times did we see punts, uh, land inside the ten yard line this season by Maimon? I mean, I think it was six, seven or eight this season. I mean, it was just really impressive work, uh, from, from Blake Maimon this year at the punter position. So that's a good pull. Um, mine's a little deep like yours as well. Uh, and I mentioned when I was talking about Kayvon Thibodeau, if Jordan Scott were to go pro, I think Oregon's going to be in a good spot from at least a starter perspective. Uh, and that's because of Popo Amave, uh, the redshirt sophomore defensive tackle. 15 tackles, five tackles for loss, three and a half sacks this season. Uh, first couple of games, Willie wasn't out on the field all that much, but uh, I think the development under Joe Salavea, the defensive line coach, and Andy Avalos, the, the defensive coordinator, uh, Popo has really kind of come into his own, has really changed his body from when he showed up two years ago, uh, and has gotten healthy, and now has become a very stout defensive player up front to the point where I think it was almost like they were interchangeable the last quarter of the season. 
2019 between Popo and Jordan Scott. Uh, Popo played a ton in that Rose Bowl. Uh, there's, there was a clip out there that, that he went up against, uh, Wisconsin's Remington Trophy winning center, you know, the top offensive lineman in the country, or top tr- uh, center in the country, uh, and basically mauled him. Just, just completely destroyed him. And it's just one play of 70 something plays that the defense had to have. But nonetheless, it was still impressive. And I think, I think his emergence has really opened the door for if Jordan Scott does go pro, Oregon at least has one guy that they can feel very confident is capable of, of starting and playing in every down. And then instead of having to develop two, which we were worried about going into the year, now it's just, can you find Popo's backup? Maybe that's Brandon Dorless. Maybe that's uh, somebody else on the roster, or maybe it's somebody that they signed. But I think if Jordan goes pro, Popo's capable of handling the middle. And if Jordan comes back, now all of a sudden you've got two defensive tackles slash nose tackles that might be, you know, two of the better ones in the entire conference next season. I love that pick just because he flows a little under the radar probably. Uh, in terms of, like, you read through the stats, they don't jump off the screen, and that's because defensive tackles typically don't put up crazy stats. Jordan Scott had a great season, and he only had 32 tackles. But you're right in terms of the development of, of Amave throughout, over the course of the season from a person that was, I don't know, I think coming into the year, I think neither of us really knew what we'd ex- expect no. to see from him. Like, if, would he even be much of a contributor? Um, but you look back at the year, and, and he was somebody that, towards the end of the season in particular, was really playing at a high level, and you're right in terms of he's somebody that going into 2020, Oregon has now has a luxury of, okay, depending upon what happens with Jordan Scott, they at least know they have someone capable of filling in there that's already on the roster, which is something I think um, was really kind of a glaring spot of, like, what happens if he goes pro? Who's the who's the fill-in? Are they going to have to go Juco? Are they going to have to grad transfer? Now you think you feel pretty good about what you have. Let's take a quick break, uh, come back. We're going to dive into just Troy Dye's legacy at Oregon. Uh, and also discuss just kind of the latest with the Oregon Offensive Coordinator search. All right, welcome back to the Austin Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Bream. Eric Scopel is with me as always. Uh, let's dive into Detroit Eye career at Oregon and where he fits, uh, I think, in – the record books, the history books, how he's going to be viewed uh, four years from now, ten years from now, and, and so forth. Um, his fresh, his senior year was statistically uh, his worst year at Oregon. Eighty-four tackles, nine and a half tackles for loss. He had two and a half sacks. He had two interceptions, which is a career high for a, or season high for him. Uh, he had. Four passes defended, four force, uh, two forced fumbles, one of which came in, I believe, the Rose Bowl. Yeah. Um, but you know, you look at his other, you know, look at his other tackles. And as a freshman, he had 91. As a sophomore, he had 107. Uh, and then in as a junior last season, he had 109 uh, solo tackles, 62 as a sophomore, 64 as a junior, and yet. So you look at that, and I think you you know the first instant instinct is oh he just didn't play very well he had a down year. I think it's the complete opposite. I think he had his best year at Oregon uh, as a, as a senior. Um, he just didn't have to cover up so many mistakes. 
I think that's a, an interesting point, and you look, you do look back at those 2016 and 17 defenses in particular. They weren't good. They weren't very good, and in 16, and actually in, in particular, terrible. in particular, they were very bad. They were very, very bad. And he was he only played 10 games that season. He still had 91 tackles and 12 for loss, five and a half sack. I think he had I can't remember who they were playing, but one of those first non-conference games, he exploded and had just like five tackles for loss or something. Um, he he. He's a very, very good football player and a player that I think developed over the course of his career into a different football player. I mean, when he came in, he was recruited as a safety. He played a little outside linebacker his first season. He moved inside and was really just kind of up for whatever. Um, you know, and then obviously this last season is playing in a different defense under Andy Avalos and the one he played for a couple of years under Jim Levitt and didn't really seem to take too much of a step back. Um, you know, we should mention he, also suffered a broken hand this season, or was it a hand or just a couple digits? I think it might have been a broken thumb um, on on his hand, but still, I mean, he was wearing a huge cast, and he still performed at a very, very high level. Um, An ultimate warrior, and a guy who I think some of his contributions aren't even, you know, seen on the stats, which is he's a heck of a leader. He's a heck of a, a guy to get some players fired up around him, and a player that just you know, I think was very reliable in terms of you kind of knew what you were getting from him. Sure, he wasn't a perfect football player. You, you you think if you go back and watch tape, there are probably times where he takes a bad angle and gets beaten or whatnot. But um, somebody who, for, through four seasons at Oregon, and if you want to talk about a legacy, was just you, you knew you had a really good player in the middle of the defense with Troy Dye. Um, and you knew you had a player that was going to be reliable and that was going to be fired up. And you, ne- you knew effort was never going to be a concern. Yep. Um, he played his butt off every game. And, you know, that's, I think, Oregon's now obviously going to have to replace him. They've got guys in the roster to do it. They have a guy like Justin Flo and uh, Noah Sewell coming in to possibly replace him. I think Troy Dye becomes somebody those guys can kind of look at and say, we want to kind of mimic our game a little bit after how he played in terms of he was so physical. He was very, he's a very, very good athlete. Um, and he played his, like I said, he played his butt off. He played really, really hard. And he did that for four straight seasons with basically no injuries besides, you know, thumb I talked about earlier, but he was kind of an Ironman guy. Um, you know, didn't really miss a ton of games uh, throughout his career. And uh, and you're right in terms of the legacy. He he's now third all time at Oregon in, in in career for for tackles. He has 398, almost got to 400. There's only two guys with more than 400 tackles. It's Tom Graham and uh, Bruce Beakley. Those guys both played in the 60s and 70s. So I mean, it's been a really long time. I mean, he's kind of unparalleled. To a certain degree, in terms of if you want to talk about linebackers since 2000, um, he's, there's not really anybody on the list that's that close to him in terms of tackles. I mean, Patrick Chung was a safety, but uh, he's he's the next closest guy from the 2000s. And then Kevin Mitchell, who played at the very beginning of the 2000s, is seventh on the all-time tackles list with 366. So um, you talk about guys certainly this decade, and then if you look at just the century, uh, he he belongs in terms of that conversation and. Obviously, neither of us were alive to watch Graham or, or Beakley play, but um, I, I would say that you could probably make a pretty compelling argument that if you look at the totality of a career, that Troy Dye definitely deserves to be at least discussed amongst those guys. I mean, I, I just go back to thinking about, you said, like 2,000 and beyond linebackers, and then I don't want to you know, discredit the guys that played before that, but that's just kind of... Maybe a little, you know, mid nineties is kind of where my, uh, I guess recollection falls in. And maybe that's just, you know, showing the sign of my youth and whatnot. But, you know, I just look at this group and 
at the linebacker position over over the time, and I can't think of anyone that I would definitively take over Troy Dye. I mean, Kiko Alonso, Josh Cadu, uh, Michael Clay. I mean, Clay was special. You know, that was a guy where I think if he was a little bit bigger, because he was only like 5'10", 5'11", he would have had a long career in the NFL. But you know, he 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 started basically four years for the Ducks. Uh, he finished with 277 tackles. He had two, you know, 2011 and 2012. He had over 100 tackles in his career. But um, none of these guys had the longevity that that or that Troy Dye had. Uh, none of these guys showed up. Now, you know, granted, Troy Dye did play on a terrible defense in 2016. Yes. Like you have to take that into consideration. But I don't think it was terrible in part because of what he was doing or not doing. It was, I think, because of the guys that just didn't have the talent around him. Um, is is Troy Dye the most NFL, you know, the, the best NFL prospect to come out of Oregon at linebacker? Probably not. You know, I, I mean, Kiko is probably going to be that guy. Uh, you know, Deion Jordan played outside linebacker defensive end and he went number two overall. Uh, Troy Dye is not going to be that, you know, but I think Dye could find himself being picked somewhere in the third or, or fourth round, maybe late second if he has a really good combine and just really impresses some guys and climbs up that list. But I just go back and think like there really isn't a guy out there that I think I would definitively want him over Troy Dye because Troy Dye is instinctful. Uh, he was a guy that was always around the football. He was versatile because he could play inside. He could play outside. He came in as a safety, uh, and they put him in that linebacker because he got bigger. Uh, and then I think one of the most underrated skills that he has that's going to make him a ton of money in today's NFL is his ability to cover tight ends. Like, he ha- he is a very good pass coverage uh, linebacker. And I just I'm, – I'm, I'm thinking back – of all of all the players that we've seen, whether uh, it's Kevin Mitchell or Peter Sermon, uh, Matt Smith, uh, Josh Cadu, Ma- Casey Matthews, um, Clay Math, you know, uh, Kiko Alonso, right. um, Dye is better. I think Dye is better than every one of them. I, I mean, I, I I just I I can't I can't you can't I, I haven't convinced myself that someone else is is better than Troy Dye at the linebacker spot. And I think if you just talk about it in terms of like, okay, who's the, who are the best defensive players of this decade from Oregon? I think you've got DeForest Buckner is probably the, the no brainer top guy, but you could make a really strong case for, for Die to be either second or third. You know, you throw an EFO and he was an All American for a couple of years there as well, but he certainly belongs in terms of being discussed amongst the best players. I think if you were just to say who are the three most memorable defensive players from this decade, I think you'd say Buckner, Ufo, and Troy Dye, and I don't think you'd have a lot of qualms about saying that. Um, uh, and again, somebody who you talked a little bit about his NFL potential, I'll be very curious to see what that looks like for him in terms of where will he be drafted, um, what kind of a, a role will he play in the NFL. I mean, I'm still not sure exactly where he's going to play um, from a position perspective. Is he an inside linebacker at the next level? Is he an outside linebacker? I don't know. You know, from a size perspective, he's kind of in a weird spot. He's 6'4", 225 pounds. So, um, I, I, I think, again, I think you're, we've kind of talked a lot about this, but he, he's somebody that will be remembered very fondly for his career, not only because of the type of player he was, but also for the personality he was. He's one of the best interviews we've had over the last couple of years. He's a funny, funny guy. 
and somebody that was really just kind of the heart and soul of the team. And I think everybody knew that. And the, and the pairing of Justin Herbert with Troy Dye in terms of the different the different personalities there. Um, and but so two players that got along very very well. Uh, I think that type of stuff will be remembered and is really kind of fun to talk about and look back at. Real quick, Eric, I'm going to throw a curveball at you. And this is the beauty Uh-oh. of big news happening while we're recording a podcast. Um, Pete Thamel of Yahoo Sports is reporting Mike Leach of Washington State will be the next head coach at Mississippi State. What? <laughs> <laughs> literally, well, literally, I, I just saw it pop up in our Slack message right as you were reading it to me. And I'm kind of – it was like unfolding in my head of like, wait, what's go- what's happening? Uh, that is very interesting. Uh, I, think, Oregon, I think if you're an Oregon fan, you're excited by this. Yes, like Washington State goes from being a team that you have a really hard time playing every single season to now being a team that, like, depending upon who they hire, like Oregon. I mean, this this helps Oregon. This does not hurt Oregon at all. I mean, regardless of what you think of Leach as a personality or, or you know, his inability to beat Washington or, or whatnot, like Oregon had a really hard time. Every single season against Mike Leach coach teams, that air raid offense was really difficult. So this is a big win for Oregon in terms of, and also just like kind of out of left field for me. Like I, 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 my reaction was that was genuine. Of like he's doing, he's he's what he's coaching at Mississippi State now. Um, okay, well I, I guess uh, maybe not good for the conference though because it'd be interesting to see who Washington State targets, but they're not going to get anybody remotely as good as Mike Leach. So I think I can convince. Most people of that. I mean, I'd be shocked if they're able to hire somebody even in the same stratosphere as Mike Leach. And honestly, the fact that he stayed there as long as he did was um, was was impressive. But man, that is a big blow, I think, to the conference. But if you're just an Oregon centric fan and you just care about the Ducks, this is this is a big this is a big win for Oregon. It's it's huge because this is for whatever reason, like you said, for whatever reason, Oregon could just not handle his his passing attack and this is a team that's always overachieved and specifically next season we don't know who they're going to hire we don't but whoever they hire the the natural assumption is i think it's very fair to say uh that they're going to take a step back and it opens the door for less of a competition, you know, Oregon's grip on the Pac-12 North in 2020 and beyond gets a little bit tighter because, look, under Leach, they they elevated themselves, 100%. and it's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna depend on who they hire. Maybe they find someone that can you know keep the air raid going and you know what they do, but the the, the North just got weaker. And yeah. for, for Oregon, that's huge because that's one less game. That's a dogfight. I mean, Oregon could have lost that game this year. So, um, it, 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 it's going to be an interesting development who they hire, what's next. Um, there are, there are a lot of Washington State coaches on Oregon staff right now. Do, do they try and go back and, and pluck one of these guys? Ooh. I'm a head coach. I mean, I'm just totally speculating. That's but. totally spitball on there. That would be very interesting. There are a couple of people. And I've also just owned on me who the coach at Ole Miss is now. So you've got Lane Kiffin at Mississippi and Mike Leach at Mississippi State, a couple guys who 
or coaching <laughs> in the Pac-12 and who are very, very good quotes. Uh, I just can't wait until Saban has to defend the 94 passes that Mike Mitch <laughs> is going to have. <laughs> well, back to your point, I mean, that, that, that actually could be something to, to keep to monitor. Um, it's not a bad point of like, okay, I, mean, I don't know if like Ken Wilson's a head coaching candidate, but could, could Joe Salavea or somebody like that could – could Jim Mastro be a candidate to be an offensive coordinator there or something? I don't know, but those are guys that have had experience up in the Palouse. So um, it's going to be very interesting. That's, a, that's an added wrinkle in the conference now in terms of, you know, we already know there's a couple of schools that are making changes. There's coordinators changing around the conference. Now you have another school that's going to have a big, big coaching um, turnover there, and it'll be interesting to see what, what you know, what takes place over there, and could there be any ripple effects to Oregon? I hadn't really thought about it, but you're right. Oregon does have three assistant coaches who've who had coached under Mike Leach at times at Washington State. Could they be candidates to follow Mike Leach now to Mississippi State now that he's at a little bit bigger school? Who knows? All right, let's let's circle back now to uh, Oregon because believe it or not, they too also need to. Uh, make some kind of coaching hire and that's an offensive coordinator and um there was a report out by footballscoop.com uh earlier Thursday and, th- and look when we're we're recording this podcast Thursday afternoon and so Thursday morning even so when we release this on Friday there could be a head coach named um but there is a report out there right now that a hire could be imminent um done today as in Thursday, tomorrow as in Friday. Uh, and the leading candidates right now, Mississippi State head coach Joe Moorhead, uh, Jed Fish, who's the Rams offensive coordinator, Tulane's uh, offensive coordinator, Will Hall. Uh, and then Oregon's also had uh, Jorge Munez, uh, an LSU offensive analyst, uh, supposedly in town for an interview. We do know, I can confirm, that interviews are going on right now, and they are happening. Uh, and... Um, it wouldn't surprise me based off the things I've independently heard from within the program, from within our own network, that something gets done by the weekend, maybe national championship. Um, I think, I think th- that's not me, you know, definitively saying it's going to happen then, but just the way things are progressing, um, I think that's the next logical step. And it wouldn't surprise me if, if Cristobal wants to have this done. Um, by the national championship game because recruiting is going to start soon. And that, and, and it's right now it's a dead period. And so coaches can't go out and they can't go and see recruits and, you know, they can't call guys and, and all of that. But that's going to be, um, that's going to be lifted soon. And it, it will get lifted on the 17th. So one week basically from today, uh, it's, Schools will be able to go out and make contact with recruits, and you want to have your staff intact. You want to be able to to be able to go out with a full staff and not have to answer questions. Well, who's going to be the coordinator? We know Jamie Newman at Wake Forest, the grad transfer. He's waiting on Oregon to see who they hire. So it looks like things are progressing uh, quickly, and, and we should have a hire probably relatively soon. Well, it also makes sense from a just promoting the program perspective if you can get a hire done right around the day of the national championship game that means they might actually be discussing it during the national championship game with millions and millions of people watching it and it might i mean that doesn't mean a ton necessarily but at least it gets people aware of of what oregon's doing and if it's a splash hire 
a sexy hire that gets people excited, that could be something where it does sort of increase kind of the national perception. And it, I, it's going to be, yeah, it'll be, it's going to be interesting. I think you make a lot, a lot of good points in terms of the timing of it. You want to have, you want to be able to answer questions for recruits in terms of who's going to be the offensive coordinator. And if Oregon is looking at grad transfers, a quarterback, or really anybody on offense, currently right now there's questions they don't have answers to in terms of who's going to be the offensive coordinator, what are they going to want to do philosophically. These are things that you, you need to kind of have prepared to make those presentations to, to maybe sway a recruit here or there. So the timing of it does make sense in terms of getting it done here in the next couple of days. And I think if you're an Oregon fan, you're, you're kind of just excited. Not that this is drawn on that long, but you're just kind of excited to know what the future looks like and to kind of start being able to uh, kind of read about whoever it is who gets the job and kind of what kind of a, a coach he is, what kind of personality he has, what his background looks like, how that could impact things. Um, you know, I know Marcus Arroyo took a lot of flack over the last couple of years and Oregon fans are, uh, should, should be prepared to find somebody else to not like very much or to like a lot, um, depending upon how the hire plays out. And then obviously the next step for Crystal Ball is finalizing the rest of his staff. Like who, is there anyone on staff that he needs to move off from? Is there anyone that could be going to take other positions elsewhere? Uh, as he restructure things? Um, I don't think he needs to move off from anybody. That would be a kind of a bit of a surprise. Um, but maybe someone gets courted by somebody else. And then how does the structure fall out there? And then it, it goes back to building out um, the support staff. You know, the guys that can't coach on the field the analysts, the recruiting coordinators, the uh, assistants to the head coach, uh, the, the strength staff, the nutrition staff, um, the life skills staff. I mean, yeah, it's it's wild. I've, I've covered this football team since 2009, and you've been around that time as well. Uh, I can never remember a time before this year where a staff has been this big at Oregon. And I, I – I'm 100% in the belief that it has a direct correlation to a, a team's success. Um, I read a story about how uh, LSU, uh, Ed Orgeron, went to the AD and said, we need to spend this money for support staff. And uh, they were a, a group of about five guys when he got the head coaching job, and now it's, I think, 20. And the AD at LSU said that he, he believes that, that those guys have helped pave the way for this team at LSU this year to get to the national championship. And it's an arms race, if you will, uh, support staffs. And I think finding guys, you know, like a Jor Moorhead who was a head coach and maybe you can get him on the cheap to be the offensive coordinator because of his buyout at, at Mississippi State. Um, but finding other guys like a Rocky Long, for instance, a guy that, he he said he's open to coaching. He's just he's done at at San Diego State, and he's going to just retire until something comes up that he likes that fits. Maybe he's interested in just the X's and O's of football, not having to deal with recruiting and and all that. And maybe he can come in and be a guy that you have as a defensive analyst. Those are the types of guys I'm talking about. I'm not saying that there's interest in Rocky Long. I don't know if there is. I mean, I I would be if I was Chris Ball, but you know, finding those types of coaches who recently retired or fired or um, out of work for you know head coaching change or whatever and getting those guys into the program to do other jobs for a year, six months, 18 months, because those guys helped tremendously. Do you, I mean, because so there are limitations to the number of assistant coaches that you can have. And those are coaches. Ten. That are, yeah, it's 10. Do you think there needs to be, or do you expect there's going to be at some point a limit to the number of just, 
total total staff? Because it seems like right now you can go out there and build a, a, a pretty large analyst staff. But I'm I might be wrong on this. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think there are restrictions currently in place in terms of numbers. Do you think that's something that's going to happen? I mean, because it does seem like that's really the trend now. I think it started at Alabama um, where they just – any head coach basically that didn't have work, they brought in and put them to work in some capacity. But do you think that's something that needs to take place, or do you think it's just – you know, if because if, what it seems like it does is it benefits the schools with a little bit bigger budgets that can go out there and find an extra guy here, a guy, extra guy there – um, that might be that have implications, you know, that that maybe another school doesn't have the the budget to hire. You know, that's a good question. Um, I think, yeah, probably there needs to be some kind of limit on it. Um, but at the same time, if the school can afford it, why can't they do it? You know, if if they're willing to to, to shell out, I don't know, a million dollars in in salary to off field coaches. Uh, that year, why not do it? I mean, half a million dollars? I, I don't know. I, I have a hard time with that one, but I could see the NCAA trying to at least explore the idea of, is this getting out of control? Is it kind of like, you know, the 85 scholarship limit and is it putting, you know, the Washington State or the Oregon State at a disadvantage because Oregon or Washington or USC has the money uh, to, to build out staffs like this in the Pac-12. I mean, it does put other schools at disadvantages because they don't have the cash to do it. Yeah, no, I, I think it's something that is kind of under, or maybe overlooked a little bit in terms of, you, you and we see Oregon starting to do it, but um, you, you can really build these staffs up a little bit, and it's no longer just the, I think at one point it was nine assistant coaches, now it's ten, but it used to be you just kind of had your nine guys, you had a couple grad uh, grad assistants and, and, and that was kind of the staff. And now you can really build it up and, and have, you know, maybe 20 something guys on a part of the staff. And, and it really helps. You know, you, the more eyes you have doing some of the stuff, it takes, it, you know, lightens the load for certain guys. And maybe somebody, you know, with a little fresher eyes sees a little something else and can kind of make an impact in a game plan. So, um, it, it's an interesting discussion and it will be interesting to see how much Oregon grows from that perspective this offseason too. Cause I think you're right in terms of, um, you know, currently there aren't, there's only one, assistant coaching position that's open, but technically there's a ton of spots and ton of room available if they want to build it other ways. All right, that's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audibles podcast. For Eric Scopel, myself, Matt Broom, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos.